1: Today is Tuesday, August 14th, 2007, and I'm Dr. Richard Savell. In today's podcast, we will be speaking with Dr. John Kellum, MD, FCCM, a professor of critical care medicine at the University of Pittsburgh. Dr. Kellum was an author of an article for the August 2007 issue of Critical Connections entitled Preventing Acute Renal Failure. The co-author is Dr. K. Singbartel, M.D., an assistant professor of critical care medicine at the University of Pittsburgh. The reference for this article is Critical Connections, 2007, volume 6, number 4, page 1. Thank you so much, Dr. Kellum, for joining us today on the podcast. We'd like to begin by allowing you, Dr. Kellum, to spend a few moments and share with the listeners some of the background on the epidemiology and the clinical significance of acute renal failure in the intensive care unit.
2: Uh good morning Richard happy to uh to do that um uh you know i think that uh, this whole area has evolved uh, a great deal in the last uh, several years and i think that uh, uh part of that is really a better understanding of even basic things like uh definitions and uh, uh underlying epidemiology i i think that uh, for Uh, Half a century we've used the word acute renal failure, but we've defined it uh, rather poorly. Uh, Studies have looked at anything from a very small change in serum creatinine to marked changes in creatinine with the need for uh, dialysis as a definition for acute renal failure. And obviously, it's very difficult to compare studies which use very uh, widely different. Uh, definitions of acute renal failure. So more recently, a, a term acute kidney injury has, uh, has sort of seeped into the medical literature and has been defined in, in a much more precise way. Uh, I think probably now the standard approach is to use something called rifle criteria, uh, which um, uh, define acute kidney injury based on three levels of dysfunction, uh, risk, injury, and failure, the first three letters in the mnemonic, uh, which are defined on the basis of either small changes in creatinine or uh, urine output. The rest of the mnemonic is made up by loss and end-stage renal disease, which uh, represent persistent renal failure uh, or essentially permanent renal failure and stage kidney disease. AKI, uh, defined by RIFLE criteria, has now been validated or the criteria has now been validated in over 76,000 patients. So I think we're now at a place where we can really Uh, sort of have a a standard definition for uh, a syndrome that we all know about but that now uh, is defined in a a standard way.
1: One of the questions I had as a follow-up and then we'll let you keep going on this is um, many times in the ICU uh, along the lines of this rifle criteria you'll see patients that may have a very high creatinine but have a reasonable urine output and conversely patients that have a, a very low urine output but may have a normal creatinine and Without quoting any particular paper, it seems as if those patients may have different outcomes or may have a different kind of renal failure. Can you talk about that, I guess, leading into the uh, clinical consequences of this?
2: Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. I think that uh, uh, traditionally people have talked about non-oliguric and oliguric uh, uh, renal failure as being as being different, although some of that Concept I think has been challenged more more recently, uh, and, and uh, I, although I think that uh, an anuric patient who uh, has uh, essentially no urine output for uh, a period of time often has a, a worse course uh, for for obvious reasons that uh, more difficult to manage, et cetera, um, than a patient who has uh, a relatively transient episode of maybe lower urine output but not uh, not anuria. I, I think that um, it one of the things that the criteria such as the rifle criteria provide is is a way of, of categorizing patients in terms of the degree of, uh, of dysfunction in either urine output or serum creatinine. And um, as you go from having a relatively transient, mild episode of oliguria to more profound or persistent oliguria, your risk of death increases, and so does your, your score. So w- whereas I, I don't know whether or not uh, we're going to see significant differences between oliguric and non-oliguric uh, renal failure if categorized Carefully this way, um, certainly there's reason to believe that those patients may be different and that they may respond differently to therapy, et
1: cetera. But uh, one of the controversies you're alluding to that I guess we can talk about later, but now is is fine. Also, is that this concept of converting oliguric into non-oliguric renal failure with the use of diuretics seems to have less and less data behind it. If if I'm saying that right?
2: Well, and in fact, I think the the data has has increased, but the but it's negative data, and I and I think that um, uh, what we can't Say at this point is, is that, and we, we'll cover this, I think, uh, in, in a bit, but I think that we can pretty clearly say uh, that diuretics don't work to prevent acute renal failure. They certainly have a role in management of complications, most notably volume overload, but that they do not uh, prevent acute renal failure or lessen the likelihood of renal injury.
1: One of the important things you mentioned in your article, which I believe uh, merits uh, discussion here, is the uh, mortality associated with developing acute kidney injury in the intensive care unit, if you'd like to talk about
2: that. Right. I, I think it's, a, it's extremely a, a important to understand, and as we were talking about a moment ago, that as the the rifle criteria has uh, been uh, looked at across different populations, that uh, not only the, the associated mortality, but the size of this problem, I think, uh, um, bare mention. And so, uh, across hospitalized uh, patients, for example, 20% of, of hospitalized patients have uh, some episode or some evidence of acute kidney injury, and, and as many as a staggering two-thirds of intensive care unit patients develop AKI or acute kidney injury during their, their hospital stay. Um, in population studies, and we've only had a, a really one uh, population study published so far, and that's from Scotland in, in the northern, and uh, the Aberdeen area of Scotland, uh, roughly 2,100 100 per million population uh, will uh, come down with uh, acute kidney injury, if you will. Um, we know that, that even if you look at the most severe form of uh, acute kidney injury, that, that that requires or is treated with uh, dialysis, that roughly 6% of all ICU patients um have that severity uh, of acute kidney injury. And so worldwide, we're talking about somewhere around uh, 6 to 8 million people. So it's a huge problem. And as you were asking, the, the mortality rates are really um, are, are quite staggering. The, uh, even just uh, uh, this more mild form of acute kidney injury, not the, uh, the, 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 the severity that requires renal replacement therapy, but even the milder forms are associated with anywhere from a two to five-fold increased risk of death. Uh, even after adjustment uh, for underlying uh, severity of illness and and comorbidity. If you require renal replacement therapy, your mortality goes up to 50 to 60%. Um,
1: Right. That was the part that that I thought was important, especially when you're having discussions with families, right?
2: I I think that's right. The other thing to tell families, however, uh, though, is that um, if you survive a course of acute kidney injury, uh, even if it's severe enough to require dialysis, your likelihood of, of recovering renal function by hospital discharge is actually quite good. Eighty percent of survivors um, recover uh, renal function to the point that they don't require dialysis at hospital discharge. So although it's important for families to understand that this is a severe problem when it occurs, and it is one that is uh, extremely important in terms of the, uh, the increase in the risk of death, that dialysis is, that we're not sort of committing patients to dialysis when they require uh, renal replacement therapy before uh, acute kidney injury. So if they can survive hospitalization, uh, their likelihood of, uh, of reco- renal recovery is actually quite good.
1: And then as a follow-up to that, and this is just a a question for you, is do you think that the acute kidney injury with the high mortality, do you think it's a causal relationship or that the kidney dysfunction is a marker? Because you would argue with me and say, no, 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 even if you correct for uh, Apache scores, they still have a higher incidence of death, right? Or.
2: that's right. I think making causal relationship or causal inferences from observational data is always quite difficult. Um, All we can really say is is that to the extent that we can control for these other variables, which we know are important, renal injury or kidney injury emerges as an important determinant of uh, hospital mortality and and long-term mortality uh, in this population, even after we control for all these other things. There's also good biologic rationale to believe that um, renal disease would have a, a causal relationship with mortality, we know that the absence of, uh, of, of kidney function results in all kinds of, uh, essentially, multi-system organ failure. Uh, we know that white cells don't work as well uh, when they're when the, the neutrophils are uremic, so that we have an increased infection. We know that platelets don't work uh, as well, so that we have uh, problems with bleeding. Uh, we know that volume overload produces uh, problems getting off the ventilator and problems with wound healing, and, you know, the list goes on and on. And so, um, given the strong biologic rationale uh, and the statistical data that, that we have together, I think uh, we can make a fairly strong case that patients are, in fact, dying of acute renal failure and not just with renal failures, we might have said years ago.
1: Why don't we move on to the next uh, segment of the interview in which we give you an opportunity to talk about some of the non-pharmacologic methods to prevent acute kidney injury in the critical care setting
2: sure. I think that's a, a, a great place uh, to start. Um, and, and I think uh, part of the reason is is that most of the things that we have that are uh, essentially effective in terms of uh, preventing uh, acute renal failure are really those things which are relatively simple to do and, and to really sort of top the list uh, are, are really fluids. And fluids have, have a couple of different important roles. One is is that we know that, that hypovolemia uh, and or dehydration, uh, the latter being the the lack of of water in the form of being a lack of uh, circulating blood volume, that both of those are risks of, uh, for the development of, of acute uh, kidney injury as either a result of septic or toxic insults. Um, and so we, we know that try, treating dehydration and then treating hypovolemia is extremely important. But even beyond that, fluid loading with isotonic fluids appears to be protective, at least in some forms of acute kidney injury, most notably uh, toxic uh, injury from, say, uh, IV contrast. And so um, isotonic fluids, uh, uh, traditionally isotonic saline, uh, there's been some data around the the potential benefit, added benefit of of using a bicarbonate-based isotonic uh, solution, although uh, the evidence for that is, is,
1: Uh, I was going to ask you, uh, personally, your interpretation. I guess that's the Merton trial, right, in terms yeah, of using a bike yeah.
2: and, and again, I, I think one of the things that, that happens,
1: But has something like that been sort of integrated into the University of Pittsburgh Protocol for Prevention or anything like that? What we or or currently not?
2: What I just said. Make sure that you give fluids. Um, your, uh, it's your option as a clinician to choose either sodium bicarbonate-based uh, solutions. Uh, again, an isotonic solution is what's important, uh, or sodium chloride. And I think you can make that judgment basically on the patient's acid-base status. it already has uh, alkalosis, for example, you know you, you might be reluctant to provide sodium bicarbonate. Uh, furthermore, if the patient's uh, acidotic, then you might say, well, gee, I, You know, in addition to trying to protect the kidneys, it would be fine to go ahead and give this. Uh, sodium bicarbonate. So I I think it's not a strong recommendation as choosing between the two. Uh, What it really is is a strong recommendation to make sure that you provide IV uh, isotonic uh, uh, fluids.
1: And then you also mentioned in terms of contrast media, the type, root, and volume. Would you like to expand upon that?
2: Yeah, I, I think that that, that is uh, extremely important. So often the, the best thing we can provide uh, patients in terms of preventing uh, acute renal failure is to prevent uh, or to limit exposure to nephrotoxins, and that includes uh, contrast. And, and along those lines, it's been clearly identified that uh, higher molecular weight uh, uh, contrast, particularly the, the older uh, high tonicity, high osmolar uh, uh, contrast is at a higher risk. And so lower osmolity and potentially even iso-osmotic uh, contrast, which is now emerging on the market, uh, would be uh, a more effective uh, or be less injurious, I should say, Um the route appears to be important as well. Arterial uh, uh, contrast is at higher risk than than venous. And then, uh, most importantly, I, I think is limiting the the volume of contrast and the number of contrast studies uh, to the absolute minimum necessary uh, to get the information uh, and, uh, and the quality of the study. Um, it's, there's a clear relationship between uh, the volume of contrast and the uh, the risk of uh, developing contrast nephropathy.
1: And then, one last point in this section that maybe you. Know, uh, obvious, but nevertheless incredibly important to emphasize, is this avoiding hypotension and blood pressure management and the role of vasopressors in that?
2: I think, you know, that is obviously very important. We know that uh, hypotension is a risk factor for uh, acute kidney injury, um, al- although recent uh, um, evidence uh, that has uh, uh, Apparent in the last uh, a few years, um, really sort of debunks uh, ischemia or or hypoperfusion of the kidney as being the primary cause of 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 renal injury, and particularly in sepsis, for example. Um, There's still certainly an added insult uh, associated with hypotension, and avoiding uh, hypotension and uh, and therefore avoiding. ischemic insult, uh, added ischemic insult to the kidney is certainly important. Along those lines, it's, it's I think, uh, important to emphasize that norepinephrine, when used uh, to treat hypotension, is clearly not nephrotoxic. And in fact, uh, both renal blood flow and indices of renal function uh, are actually in animals have been shown to improve when norepinephrine is used uh, to treat Uh, uh, vasodilatory shock, such as in in sepsis. So um, we shouldn't be uh, afraid to use norepinephrine. In fact, uh, protecting uh, a volume-resuscitated patient from having hypotension uh, is, in fact, uh, uh, very important.
1: Can you expand upon the previous statement that there may be literature debunking that the hypotension and ischemia may not be the initial exciting event in in sepsis for maybe fellows or people who aren't aware of that?
2: Well, I I think what you're talking about is... is, uh, of the pathophysiology of acute kidney injury and sort of where we are uh, you know, with it right now. And I, I think the, probably the most important thing to indicate is, is that we still don't really understand the pathophysiology of acute kidney injury uh, uh, very well. Uh, what we are beginning to understand, however, is that um, sepsis is a leading cause. It's associated with about 50% of cases in multiple uh, different studies. Uh, we know that most causes of uh, acute kidney injury in the ICU are multifactorial, so, in addition to inflammation, perhaps, there may be nephrotoxic exposure, hypotension, et cetera. Um, however, this notion of alterations in renal blood flow, which uh, a decade or two ago were, the, were thought to be the predominant uh, cause, have really not clearly been shown uh, to be in play in many cases uh, of acute kidney injury. And so, for example, um, patients with uh, sepsis can, can develop acute kidney injury without any episode of hypoperfusion uh, to the kidney. So, uh, emphasizing inflammation and reversal, uh, reversible tubular uh, epithelial cell injury appears to be a more important unifying pathophysiology to this condition.
1: That's very interesting. I actually had a case that I think may have been that a few days ago, where the patient never had an episode of hypotension yet developed acute renal failure. Uh, Anyway, um, and heading towards the end of the interview, we can talk about some of the pharmacologic strategies and maybe picking one or two that you think are the most important, maybe updating on N-acetylcysteine and your thoughts on diuretics at this point.
2: Sure. I think uh, the the most important thing we can say about uh, the use of pharmacologic agents, the use of drugs to prevent uh, kidney injury, is really to follow Nancy Reagan's advice and just say no, Uh, just say no to drugs. Uh, Because... Uh, Despite multiple attempts uh, and really years of of study, uh, none of the pharmaceutical agents have really shown uh, consistent effects, and and although we get a hit occasionally on small studies, that's generally been disproven in in larger ones. In particular, we know that diuretics clearly do not prevent acute renal failure, although they are important as a tool to manage volume overload and the complications of renal failure. They do not prevent, and in fact, if anything, uh, may predispose to uh, development of acute kidney injury by by volume-depleting patients. Uh, furthermore, we know that dopamine dopamine, uh, and dopaminergic agonists uh, such as phenolidopam uh, are, uh, we know certainly in the case of dopamine that it doesn't work. Um, there is, uh, again, less data on phenoldepam, and so some of that data is positive. But again, uh, the preponderance of evidence across all the dopaminergic av- uh, agonists suggests that, that these agents don't work. And I would additionally caution that dopamine lowers the blood pressure and so may actually uh, be, be more risky, uh, despite not having uh, strong evidence that, it's, that, that it works. Uh, natriuretic peptides, again, the, this is a long story. Uh, in general, large, uh, well-conducted studies of short-dose uh, atrial natriuretic peptides, uh, for example, don't uh, prevent renal failure and may cause harm. Longer, lower-dose uh, therapies, uh, ha- ha- there are some positive uh, data on, but again, uh, really, uh we should we should restrain ourselves from using any of sorts of natriuretic peptides to try to prevent renal failure because the data really uh, do not yet uh, support that and and, and uh, perhaps never will. Uh, and then finally, I think the only real exception to the drugs uh, are antecedal cysteine as as you mentioned, because it's been widely used uh, to help prevent renal injury as a result of uh, of IV contrast. Um, The problem with N-acetylcysteine is is that it may work not by preventing renal injury, but by lowering the serum creatinine by increasing tubular secretion and by inhibiting creatinine kinase. And so uh, it may not be that that NAC prevents renal injury at all. It just makes the creatinine lower.
1: Yeah, that's very disturbing as a clinician, right? You think you're... (laughs) You say, well, look, the creatinine's better the patient. Now, having
2: said that, we, we we still... provide N-acetylcysteine along with uh, a fluid uh, 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 isotonic uh, saline uh, to high-risk patients. Uh, it has a, uh, a, you know, at least the oral agent has a, uh, a very good uh, a cost uh, 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 profile and its side effect profile is actually quite good as well. But again, I think we have to be cautious that it may not actually be protecting the kidney.
1: Um, and again, it's just a follow-up, are there ways to study that? Do you think What, what do you think will happen with ns cysteine Will that be ruled in or ruled out or anything like that? What are your well, thoughts? Well, I think the
2: most important thing is, is that independent measures of renal function, either looking at renal injury through biomarkers, which are now emerging, uh, looking at better or, or at least confirmatory uh, evidence of changes in GFR, for example, using Cystatin C, which is a, a marker of, of, of an independent marker, if you will, of, of the uh, of the GFR, um, these kinds of, of studies, which are being conducted uh, now, uh, really are the only way to really get at this question.
1: Because even the twenty four hour creatinine clearance is still based on creatinine, right? right. So that's right. the same exactly. problem. Um, and I thought I'd uh, let you conclude the interview, talking about potential uh, strategies coming down the pipeline that may be of interest uh, to the uh, members of SCCM that are listening.
2: Sure, I, you know I think uh, one of the things to to think about in terms of of strategies in the pipeline is is that as we understand the pathophysiology uh, and the epidemiology now better driven by better definitions, et cetera, we're beginning to understand that uh, the the potential role for anti-inflammatory, anti-apoptotic, uh, sort of pro-recovery agents may be very important. Um, we also know that um, uh, avoiding additional injury and permitting uh, the maximum recovery is often. Uh, Acute renal failure presents uh, before we have any real opportunity to prevent it. So even though this interview is really uh, focused on prevention of acute renal failure, often it's not possible to prevent it because patients already have renal injury at the time that they present to medical attention. Um, so trying to prevent, if you will, further injury becomes uh, extremely important. And along those lines, it's really sort of back to basics. It's it's things like uh, avoiding subsequent episodes of hypotension and hypovolemia, avoiding nephrotoxins. But in addition, I think it's important to at least mention uh, some very provocative uh, data that's come out uh, from some multicentric studies. Uh, one of them I was involved in, which is the best kidney study, uh, but, a, but a very similar uh, result uh, was published almost at the same time from the Karolinska Institute using a Swedish national database. Both studies suggested, and these are observational studies so prone to that sort of bias, but both uh, of these studies demonstrated that initial therapy with
1: But I thought this had already or I mean certainly the, the consensus recommendations to the practicing clinicians now is that there there is not a recommendation for renal replacement therapy continuous versus intermittent, and I thought this had been looked at. Are these studies different in some way that they're giving slightly different results or that renal replacement therapy continuous is more uh, effective or uh, well, well
2: these t- are new these are new studies. Uh, both of these studies have have come out uh, just in the last couple of months, so uh, certainly they wouldn't have had an opportunity to impact any of the uh, published consensus. Statements. It's also important to realize that the consensus uh, statements have been published on the weight of existing evidence, which Really provide the randomized clinical trials, for example, comparing continuous therapy to intermittent therapy are all hopelessly underpowered, uh, and some of them are also flawed in other ways. So, although I don't have a, uh, I don't really disagree with that, the the consensus statement that says that at the present time, uh, there's not strong evidence to support uh, using one form of renal replacement therapy over another, which means that. The clinician has to decide for an individual patient uh, what the best form of therapy is. Um, these data on recovery, however, are new, and I, again, as I mentioned, they're quite provocative.
1: No, and, and, it's, and it's very, very important because you know certain things in the ICU are uh, you know, where the intensivist will be choosing one drug over another, but this would be a paradigm shift for many ICUs if, the, if it really becomes clear that continuous renal replacement therapy is in fact better for patients.
2: I, I think that's right, and it's it's not only a paradigm shift in the sense that uh, um, places that don't currently provide continuous therapy uh, will uh, obviously look at that data quite differently and, and want to change their practice, but also uh, I think that it's not necessarily on the radar screen. I mean, I think that the average intensivist uh, pays a lot of attention to uh, renal function, use of diuretics, hydration, et cetera. Um, I don't know that the average intensivist really sort of thinks through... Uh, how important uh mode of dialytic therapy uh will be i think that uh, on average uh intensivists will defer those kinds of questions to nephrologists and i think as these data become uh stronger if in fact uh they do become stronger i think it'll it'll prompt the need for intensivists to have greater uh influence and greater uh attention to be paid to this particular issue
1: Dr. Kellum, would you like to make some concluding comments about acute kidney injury in the critically ill patient?
2: Um, Sure. I I think to a certain extent uh, uh, our our last little discussion, I think, summarized it uh, fairly well. But I think that um, some other points probably need to be made. I, I think it's extremely important. Uh, for clinicians not to write off the kidneys. I I think that it's important to recognize that they usually recover if the patient survives. The problem, of course, is that acute kidney injury significantly worsens the chances for survival, so anything that we can do to uh, prevent it or lessen its impact is extremely important. I think there are some reasons for optimism. I think the fact that we now have a definition that's been validated, criteria that have now been validated in over 76,000 patients, Uh, has resulted in in, uh, the the fact that now we have standard definitions which have uh, permitted uh, better epidemiology uh, to understand the magnitude of the problem and and also uh, will permit better acquisition of evidence uh, for uh, prevention and treatment. I I think that uh, we've not had that before, and it's been extremely difficult to acquire this evidence because uh, of the the lack of a standard uh, criteria for diagnosis. I think also that advances in the understanding of pathophysiology will perhaps lead us to better therapies, that uh, targeting inflammation and, and apoptosis and, and targeting renal recovery uh, may well be uh, the direction that the future will bring as opposed to a sort of over-reliance, in my view, on, uh, on, on sort of manipulating the uh, renal blood flow as the primary target.
1: We've had a great opportunity today to speak with Dr. John Kellum, MD, FCCM, a professor of critical care medicine at the University of Pittsburgh. We've been talking about acute kidney injury and prevention of acute kidney injury in the critically ill patient. This is accompanying an an article that he wrote in Critical Connections that is coming out now. Thank you so much, Dr. Kellum, for being with us today. My pleasure. This concludes our podcast for August Fourteenth, two 2007. If you have comments, questions, or ideas for future podcasts, please call the Society of Critical Care Medicine's audio feedback line at 1-847-493-6498 to share your thoughts. Critical Connections is the official, bi-monthly news magazine of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, offering the latest information about critical care to healthcare professionals. Members of the Society of Critical Care Medicine receive a free subscription, as well as other benefits. For more information, visit www.sccm.org. Thanks again for listening. Join your colleagues February 2nd through the 6th,
0: 2008 in Honolulu, Hawaii, USA for SCCM's 37th Critical Care Congress. Bring the entire family for this special congress, which will combine learning with ample leisure and tour opportunities, making the 2008 congress one you will not soon forget. You won't want to miss such highlights as the modified schedule pre-Congress courses, Hopper Pass, Casual Dress Code, the post-Congress event on Kauai, and more. The Society's 2008 Congress is not just a meeting, it's an experience. For details or to register, visit www.sccm.org.